Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of A Novel Review. How fun was that intro music? Very jungly, very sexy vibes. I'll have to give my music guy a raise. Um, He'll be stoked going from nothing to nothing. (laughs) Uh, So you might be thinking that the last episode of On the Same Page was The Road and now the first of A Novel Review is A Road. What's going on here? Well, I just thought... Uh, it would be fun to repackage the episode as so that there is a road between the two episodes. I know I'll be here all week. Uh, perhaps even opening with the close. Do I have any Harry Potter fans with me? Yes, yes, no. Okay, well, first up we have Mantelpiece Moments, a chance to highlight something fun or artistic throughout the week for you guys that I saw. And I saw this article the other day and I read it and it was fantastic so I thought I just had to share it with you guys and it was it's it's about this Chinese artist called Ai Weiwei who has completed his latest work that's going to go on display in London in April and if you're a fan of either Claude Monet or Lego I would suggest you check this out because he has recreated a panel of Monet's water lilies and he has replaced those beautiful brushstrokes with the Lego brick. Uh, which sounds crazy, but he's actually used 650,000 Lego pieces to recreate one panel of Monet's water lilies. Now, he hasn't just copied it exactly or done his own sort of interpretation of it. He has put a modern spin on it, and embedded in the artwork itself is a uh, doorway shrouded in darkness that is a commentary on the underground dugout in Zhejiang Province, China, where Ai and his father Ai King lived in forced exile in the 1960s. But together, there's sort of this beautiful interplay of the harshness of Ai's life and the beauty of art. And of course, I mean, how could we skip over this? The depth and dimension that Lego can achieve. And I'm a big fan of Lego. So when I read this article, I was so excited. The pictures look incredibly cool. I'm definitely going to check it out. So if you're a fan of, yeah, Monet or Lego or Ai Weiwei, check this out because it looks incredibly cool. So I just thought I'd share that with you guys. But anyways, it's on to the main body of the show. Today I'm going to discuss a work from the arsenal of the American writer Cormac McCarthy. And the book is The Road. It was released in 2006 and it took the world by an absolute storm. Which is kind of interesting because, I mean... If you're a fan of McCarthy, this isn't his best work. Don't get me wrong, it's it's an incredible piece of literature, unless you don't like McCarthy, in which case you probably hate this book, but it is not McCarthy's best book, which is, you know, if you love this book, I'm jealous because you've got so much other McCarthy stuff to dive into. But let's go off script, actually. His best book is Blood Meridian, and that was released in 1985, and it, it, it is without a doubt one of the best books one of the best American books ever written, let alone one of the best books ever written. And I will fight anyone on that. And if you disagree with me, please reach out, let me know, because I'd love to know why you don't like it. But it's it's so brutal. It's so dark. It's so violent. 
And yet in that violence, there's this McCarthy magic, this lyrical prose that somehow brings glimmers of biblical beauty amongst the horrors and violence that he details on the page. I mean, it is simply outstanding. If you're a fan of violence, and maybe not committing acts of violence, but just violence reading it, perhaps. If you're a fan of violence, fatalism, or maybe the mystical side of Moby Dick, you will love this book. But I warn you, it no joke, it's violent. Another thing... This is a complete, we're going so off track here, but that's okay. Another thing I love about this book is it's actually recognized as McCarthy's greatest work and sort of, you know, his, 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 his version of Moby Dick, you know, it's, it's the best work he produced. And that's incredible for an artist to sort of receive that recognition while they're still alive. He's 89, I believe, maybe 90 now, and he's just released two new books. But for an, uh, for a living artist to receive that kind of praise while they're still alive is fantastic. One only has to think of Van Gogh, you know, who died poor, thinking he's a failure, but now, of course, is recognized as one of, if not the greatest artist of all time. So, you know, it is really nice and it is really wholesome, despite the fact that it's an incredibly brutal book, that he is recognized for what he achieved. And, you know, I have, you know, McCarthy's not a stranger to this podcast. I did mention Suchry, which is such a, you know, harrowing, harrowing? You know, it it captures humanity in such a hopeful and yet futile way that it leaves you almost unsure of what you're feeling, I guess. And it, it's such an underrated book. And I feel like a lot of McCarthy is underrated itself because the road kind of shines. I feel like everyone knows the road, but not a lot of people know the rest of McCarthy's work. What's deeper in that closet? But sorry, I've gone well off topic. Today, I'm going to be discussing The Road, McCarthy's 2006 novel, and it won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and by 2009, it had already been represented on the big screen. And look, the film did its best to portray the post-apocalyptic hell that McCarthy had created, but not to sound like a broken record and a lover of literature, the book is unmatched, and McCarthy's brutal and heartbreaking story is as vivid and shattering as any film adaptation. There's so much of McCarthy to unpack, and you know, I'm sure now that I've sort of mentioned Blood Meridian and Suttery, I'll do them later on down the road, and I mean, there's no country for old men, there's all the pretty horses, we're getting off track again. There's so much more to do from his sort of arsenal that I will get to him eventually, absolutely. I want to explore some of his themes, his writing styles, his techniques, but I think I might just give a brief overview of the story itself so we have that in the back of our mind for when we move forward with these discussions. The Road is a post-apocalyptic novel taking place after an unspecified cataclysm has blasted the world and follows an unnamed father and son as they venture. They realize that they cannot survive another winter in the northern part of the country and they venture along highways heading towards the sea and that is basically the structural framework for the story. It's an incredibly simple story, it's sparse, it's bare, and yet it is filled with such dread and explores the boundaries of humanity along the way in all that they meet, the horrors of humanity. It's, It's incredibly deep. So that's sort of a brief overview of the book. It's one of his shorter novels, but before we actually get into the depth of the story, let's actually focus on McCarthy himself for a, for a little piece. One of the reasons I love McCarthy is the sheer artistic dedication he holds. He chose early on to dedicate himself to his craft to the point that he would refuse to work any other jobs. 
Now, I've got this quote here from McCarthy who states that he also didn't want to work. And let's face it, I get that. We all get that. Work sucks. But he also went on to say that you have to be dedicated. And often throughout his career, he and his family were subjected to poverty. It's kind of this sink or swim attitude that I love about McCarthy is that sheer artistic dedication to not even artistic dedication, but that sheer belief in yourself that, you know, I guess I can insert any any sort of sports metaphor here about pressure and diamonds being produced. And, you know, that's exactly what we get in McCarthy is a diamond. So let's actually turn to his style now. It's impossible to nail down the influences. There's elements of Faulkner here, there's Hemingway, there's Melville, and each novel sort of explores a, a different influence. You know, it's not exploring it in the sense that he's trying to recreate them, but they are. there definitely is those external influences upon his style. But there is the one consistent throughout McCarthy's work, and that's his use of punctuation, or I guess to be more exact, the lack of. There's no speech marks, there's barely any punctuation. Instead, he states that he likes simple declarative sentences and goes so far to say that he doesn't see a reason to blot up the page with weird little marks. Now, this is an incredible feat, especially with the back and forth conversational style he adopts throughout his novels. With little direction, you would think it can be hard to follow who is speaking or what is happening, but this is never the case, which is great. This style is so pointedly sharp, and in this novel that has already been decimated, only adds another layer of baseness, barren, and a bare story that unfolds page by page. This particular novel, The Road, is a bit more Hemingway style. It's short, it's stark, it's declarative, and yet you can't deny that there's this sort of wonderful depth, especially in the conversations that take place between the father and the son. Now, the fact that they're both unnamed only adds to the searing lack and loss of identity of humanity and hope. And I've got a little quote here. So this is a conversation that they have, and it's the child starting off. And he says, what would you do if I died? If you died, I would want to die too. So you could be with me? Yes. So I could be with you. Okay. And I mean, that's an incredibly short passage. It's five lines, it's 30 words. And yet in it, there's the depths of a parental relationship to the child and the motivation to continue. There's the struggle for survival and what you hold dear and what you're fighting for. But also there's that innocence of children and the unknowing, unaware view that they hold. And the frankness in the way that they express their ideas as well. The child is up front, whereas the father is a bit more concealed and protecting. And one of the novel's most harrowing aspects is that it is incredibly human. It's man's struggle against man, survival of the fittest to the highest order, and it explores the brutality that man will visit upon man when pushed. One father's struggle to fight and protect not just his son, but also the idea of innocence in a world that has been reduced and continues to be debased by man. So I've got this quote from McCarthy himself, and in this quote, he sort of reveals some of his own personal philosophy, which future showcases the, and explains his desire to explore these very dark and yet very real topics. He writes, There's no such thing as life without bloodshed. The notion that the species can be improved in some way that everyone could live in harmony is a really dangerous idea. Those who are afflicted with this notion are the first ones to give up their souls, their freedom. Your desire that it be that way will enslave you and make your life vorkus. 
Now, I mean, you could read that quote and go, this dude is incredibly intense. And I mean, that's a fair comment because his stories are all brutally intense as well. And this quote might seem quite dark and it might even seem a bit distant from the central idea of the road, but it can be applied on many different levels. At least I think it can. But I think where this quote shines through is through the father's actions, which is ironic because the quote itself details the darkness of humanity while the father embodies hope, the silver hem among the storm clouds. But in order to protect his son and to protect any shred of innocence in the world, he debases himself and in that act he remains true to his quest. And there is that sort of underlying sense of a quest, of a journey. There is the hope they hold in the prospects of a better place as they venture through the perilous lands. But for the father, there is the added quest of humanity The father must protect the son, but he also has everything else to consider. Curiosity, education, explanation, art, and these might seem quite trivial in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, but actually they're quite essential. The father's dedication to the cause and his son are also detailed in a subplot that explores mostly conversations between the father and wife. While the book advances in this sort of linear fashion, there is a subplot through flashbacks and memories, detailing the father and his time before, during a happy marriage, and of course the devolution of the world after the event. This extra layer only adds to the intimacy of ideas McCarthy is exploring, and I mean this is perfectly evoked in this next passage, passage that I will read for you. It's a conversation between the mother and the father, and the mother starts by saying, They are going to rape us and kill us and eat us, and you won't face it. You would rather wait for it to happen, but I can't. I can't. We used to talk about death, she said. We don't anymore. Why is that? I don't know. It's because it's here. There's nothing left to talk about. And I mean, what's so difficult and honest about this scene is that it is so incredibly personal. It is, it's, it's so raw. You know, how long should we as humans fight for our own survival, for ourselves? The father constantly talks throughout the story and, and, and in the main narrative of the story itself about how he has a gun and, he, and in that gun he has two bullets. And he's quite honest and open and he says, one is for him and one is for his son. And it's if, if it comes to that stage in the journey. But it's kind of like, at what point do you commit to that future? At what point do you commit to your own extinction and pull the trigger? And yet this father, he doesn't yet commit. His quest, no matter how thin, still holds a substance in his heart. And th- this is where this next quote that I'll read really delves into the crux of the belief this book can inspire. It reads... In the morning they came up out of the ravine and took to the road again. He carved the boy a flute from a piece of roadside cane, and he took it from his coat and gave it to him. The boy took it wordlessly. After a while he fell back, and after a while the man could hear him playing. A formless music from the age to come, or perhaps the last music on earth called up from the ashes of its ruin. The man turned and looked back at him. He was lost in concentration. The man thought he seemed some sad and solitary changeling child announcing the arrival of a travelling spectacle in a shire and village who does not know that behind him the players have all been carried off by wolves. 
And I mean, one this quote is just, it's one of my favorite of the entire novel. There is so much darkness running throughout that somber, somber-toned passage. There's the uncertainty of their place in life. Is this the end of humanity or is it the beginning? And yet, in that darkness, there is that thin veil of hope that the Father wants to inspire. This formless music, a thread of hope, a thread of art. Art, the very definition of humanity. The thing that separates and elevates man from the rest. And cradling art is this child. Is he the child that's going to ring in the next generation of humanity? Or like the Pied Piper, is this child going to be carried off into the abyss of extinction and the end? I also think it's a great passage to sort of highlight because it displays this lyrical, biblical sense of writing style that McCarthy is defined by that I'm trying to get at. You know, the man thought he seemed some sad and solitary changeling child announcing the arrival of a traveling spectacle in Shire and village who does not know that behind him the players have all been carried off by wolves. I mean, (laughs) you can see he just surrounds and shrouds the darkness with this visceral beauty of language and the flow and cadence of the passage itself is just, it's unmatched. And that's kind of how the novel goes. Such violence, and trust me, there is violence in this novel. There's the depiction of humanity at its absolute extremes, pushed to these extremes of of depravity. You know, in the earlier passage I touched on, or I didn't touch on, the, the mother touches on cannibalism. And I think that sort of sums up quite coherently of what I'm trying to get at, without spoiling the actual story. If Blake were here, he would say how his favourite kind of ending is one that ends in darkness with a single glimmer of brightness. And I completely agree. Ambiguous with a thread of hope. And there has to be, doesn't there? Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point in fighting? Really, there are two hopes in this book. That somewhere in this blasted world is some greenery of safety to start life anew. And the second hope, that there is some innocence to actually inhibit that space. The first hope of safety is not even tangible. It's, it's not perceptible. And yet there's strength for it while hope remains. The hope of deliverance from the horrors of humanity's capabilities. If you were to read McCarthy's Blood Meridian, you would come away frightened at the nihilistic structure that looms over from the reading, and many people think the same for this book. Dark, sad, and the frightening reality of what happens when humans are pushed to breaking point. But I read it as one of McCarthy's more inspiring novels. Are this father and son, unnamed, carrying the torch of humanity into a new age, or are they signalling its final swan song? Both are beautiful, and if this is the end then at least the failure comes from defeat and not a defection of morality and beliefs. So that is Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Now, before I move on from it, I, you know, Blake and I normally do a rating. And for me, this is a solid 4.4. You know, it's, it's definitely worth one read. It's definitely worth a second read. And it's definitely for me in the higher echelons of the written word. If you have listened this far and you think it sounds interesting, well, I mean... You know what to do. So what am I reading this week, I hear you say? (laughs) I'm going crazy if I can hear that. This week I have started to read, or to be more precise, I've started to actually listen to D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover. It is performed so far sparklingly by Holiday Granger, which is such a cool name. I wish I had a name like that. But I'm only a few chapters in, and what drew me in was the introduction by Fern Riddell. 
Now, the controversy surrounding this book was addressed very well by Blake in episode 35, Banned Books. So for a more comprehensive view on that, on that topic, please go listen to that episode. But in short, the book was banned in England for its depiction of sex and sexual desires and even went to trial in the 60s, which is crazy. So I, I sort of decided to keep reading this book because I feel like the fact that it caused that much of a stir in public society is quite frankly outrageous and it almost deserves to be read on those particular merits itself you know I'm, I'm not far into it that i can't comment enough on the story so far the story seems really interesting but the fact that it caused that much of a stir is 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 rather fascinating and i think that sort of is something to read and be studied in itself so that's what i'm reading this week go look it up i promise you won't be disappointed by the sort of controversy surrounding it or better yet go listen to episode 35 banned books hashtag shout out uh <laughs> And so on that quote, I thought I would finish today's episode by reading from Sophie's Choice by William Styron. And it goes, Someday I'll understand, Auschwitz. This was a brave statement, but innocently absurd. No one will ever understand, Auschwitz. What I might have set down with more accuracy would have been, Someday I will write about Sophie's life and death, and thereby help demonstrate how absolute evil is never extinguished from the world. Auschwitz itself remains inexplicable. The most profound statement yet made about Auschwitz was not a statement at all, but a response. The query? At Auschwitz, tell me, where was God? And the answer? Where was man? <laughs>